So, good evening, everybody. It's funny, I'm teaching in this room, I feel like I have to play tennis. Or I have to, it's like watching a game of Wimbledon, <laughs> which I like to do, except not this so much. <laughs> Just squash you all in. Um, so, well done, you're still here. <laughs> you didn't bolt. Maybe some of you thought about bolting. Sometimes people say, you know, I was in my car, the bags were packed, and I couldn't find the keys. Or I had a moment of like, oh my God, do I really want to leave? What if someone saw me? I'd feel terrible if someone saw me escape. And then they meekly, humbly come back to their rooms. Often, not always, sometimes they flee. (laughs) So if you've had those fleeing thoughts, you're not alone. And if you've had thoughts about wanting to move in permanently, you're also not alone. There's a whole range of experience. Maybe in the whole days, you know, maybe yesterday you felt like, oh, I'm finally here, I want to be here for three months. And then this morning, like, get me out of here. Three days is too much. So, um, you know, it's a ride. Being on retreat is a ride because there's no distraction from ourselves and our crazy minds. Have you noticed how crazy your mind can be? Doing one thing, telling you to do another thing, and then doing the opposite, and then beating you up for not doing the thing that you told yourself not to do, and, and everything in between. So to be sitting with ourselves without distractions and phones and work and busyness and TVs and people and conversations, it sounds lovely. (laughs) Great food, nice people, beautiful landscape, rain that kind of gives us a sort of wintry, let's cozy all in and get inward, right? But when we're actually faced with that reality of being present to our moment-to-moment experience, times it's fine at other times it's quite hard it's, it's at times excruciating to be with our experience and not want to flee or distract ourselves or read the back of the shampoo bottle 17 times or the notice board you've all studied the notice board and even looked at the other retreats notice board just because that looks more interesting and there's more going on over there and right? we we crave for some reason, as however satisfying it is to be in the present, which it is, it's lovely to be fully immersed, embodied in the present moment, and just right here, we seem to have this circuitry that takes us forever out of that moment and into more distressing places, anxiety-driven places what neuroscience called the default mode network, the, the mode that the brain lapses into in when we're not doing anything. And it mo- moves into a, a slightly anxious, future-oriented, planning, self-referencing story mode that's not very settling, not very easeful. I think I misquoted Rumi. The, the, the quote I wanted to read was, and you, when will you begin that long journey into yourself? That's what we're doing here today. We're beginning that long journey, not beginning, but maybe immersing ourselves into that long journey into ourselves. 
with all the mysteries and highs and lows of that experience. Someone many years ago sent me this very my uh, this beloved piece of marketing it for a meditation course called the Ultra Meditation Course. And this woman happens to be floating, levitating, because it's so great, light coming out of her, probably a crown chakra, I don't know, somewhere. And it says, in 28 minutes only, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. Get the super intelligence push-button meditation five-level ultra system for transcendence peak experience and discovering your place in the universe. You clearly came to the wrong course. <laughs> I'll be selling these later after the retreat. <laughs> Not. <laughs> I actually listened to someone gave me one of those uh, it was binaural brainwave pattern beats, whatever. And uh, I can't say I was meditating like a Zen monk. I was a little disappointed. If I'd paid, I wouldn't want my money back. Another cartoon for you. So the couple of Zen monks sitting in the Zendo meditation hall and obviously one's newer than the other. The young monk asks the old monk something like, so what, what happens now? And he says, and then the older monk says, oh, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> That's the meditation retreat. <laughs> what happens next? Oh, some more meditation. And what happens to that? Some more meditation. And what happens in the meditation? No, nothing much. <laughs> Same as before. <laughs> right, which is very different than our culture, right? That's always like the next biggest, newest, fastest, coolest techno thing. It's like, no, it's actually more of the same. Except not, it's always uniquely different, but not dissimilar. I remember there was a, uh, a yogi here, yogi refers to a meditator, and uh, who once uh, she said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> I'd rather be back at work. <laughs> I think that changed as the retreat went on, but in the beginning it was like, oh yeah, this works easier. Right? I've got my roles, I know what I'm doing, I kind of feel energized and focused. And right? Here, where we're sort of lost all reference point for our identity, and the ways that we might feel good about ourselves or you know, purposeful can be hard. Sitting in the sort of the, or sitting here, <laughs> wherever this is. So, and yet, you know, for some of you, this is your 10th or 20th retreat. So clearly there is value to being here. This, this practice has been going for 2,600 years. Clearly there's something to it. It wasn't invented in Esalen in 1970. It was, you know, it had got some legs, this practice. Right? Millions and millions of people attested to the profound transformation of this practice. I remember a student of mine down the hill, I teach this lovely course, it's a year-long course called Essential Buddhist Teachings, and she came as a last-ditch resort because she was about to be fired from work um, as a, a nurse. She had a very tough job and was proved to be very difficult to work with, and she came to this 10-day mindfulness course with me as a way to try and find out what was going on and why she was you know, keep having this habit of getting fired. And she did the course, did the practice, and then signed up for the next course. And, and over the year, um, transformed a lot. And she went from being on the verge of being fired to having these great performance reviews and being really appreciated at work. And she put it down to 
the self-awareness that came from this practice, from understanding herself and her mind, her reactivity, and how she would get into conflict and into these difficult conversations. And um, it was really sweet to see. And I see this all the time. It's one of the joys of being a teacher is I get to see how people wake up, how people develop clarity and understanding and self-compassion and spaciousness and less reactivity and more wisdom and more understanding. And that's what arises through the fruit of the practice. But it's a practice which means it's work. (laughs) You know, has anybody felt like it's been work today? Right? Yeah, it's hard work to show up, to be present, to focus, to bring your mind back for the thousandth time. Okay, just breathe. Is it that hard? Apparently it is. <laughs> come back again. And I still love you and come back again. And let go of thinking about dinner. It's going to happen. So just be here and then we'll get there eventually. So I want to give a little context for the practice and and what we're doing here and why we're doing it. And hopefully, as I explore the four foundations in more sort of framework level, it will contextualize um, your experience and, and where we're going this week and how to hold what you're going through. So the Buddha developed this practice of mindfulness through his own understanding and... Um, uh, said this at the beginning of this teaching, the, the Satipatthana teachings, he said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and grief, for the disappearance of suffering, for realizing nirvana, peace, freedom, through the four foundations of mindfulness. And this, so that's a lofty goal, to cultivate peace, understanding, freedom, liberation. Right? And it may, uh, that question might arise here, how does this practice bring freedom? How does this focusing on my breath and feeling the pain and discomfort of my body and feeling the wobbliness of my walking meditation, how does this really transform the mind and the heart? And it's a really great question. So, what is mindfulness? So you've all been studying it today and some of you have been studying it for decades. What is mindfulness? Anybody like to shout out? It comes from the word sati, which means, the root word is memory, recollection. What is mindfulness? What have you been doing all day? <laughs> Noticing, uh-huh. What else? Being aware of the present moment, uh huh. What else? Non judgmental way, mm hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Yes? With curiosity, right? The attitude that we bring to the present. So it's interesting to reflect for yourselves how would you define what it is you're doing? When you go back to the office and people say, what were you doing all week there? What, this thing, what is this mindfulness stuff? 
you know, I give this question as I run mindfulness teacher trainings and we give this to our students. How do you define mindfulness? How do you make it your own? How do you really understand this practice? So the simple translation for sati is clear awareness. Clear awareness. The simple knowing of what's happening. The being present to a moment-to-moment experience which is easier said than done. There's this great cartoon from Dharma teacher Gary Lawson, The Far Side, and there's a picture of a man and a tree and a house and a dog. And um, and the man has a paint bucket and he's painted thing on the house, he's painted house and the dog is painted dog and the tree is painted tree. That's one form of mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> of knowing one's experience, one's direct experience. <laughs> Actually, a more m- a funny uh, cartoon that I'm just remembering is um, uh, there's a bunch of cows in the field and one of them looks up startled and the, and the caption at the bottom says, wait a minute, this is grass. They've been feeding us grass. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dawning of mindful awareness, <laughs> right? Oh, this is what I'm doing. Every time I walk in the room, I notice I'm comparing myself. When I come in last, I'm judging myself. When I see everybody looking like a Buddha about to get enlightened, I feel really deficient and reactive as opposed to appreciating everybody meditating or whatever, whatever it is that you're noticing. To the simple knowing presence of our experience. Without, without, as people said, without judging, without reacting, without doing anything necessarily with it, which we normally do. We normally judge and put a whole layer of thoughts and feelings and reactions and assumptions and projections. Right? Try looking at someone today, this retreat, without getting into a whole bunch of story about them, rather than just the bare data of your sense experience, your perception. How many stories have you had about people here today? You see someone walking slow and you go, oh, but they're, you know, you see someone walking fast or unmindfully and you have some thoughts about what they're like and what they do and, right? Complete storyland. We have no idea, right? But we believe those stories, right? which is di- that's an interpretation, not the bare data of experience that we're attuning to with mindfulness. So one simile that I like a lot for, the, for mindfulness, the Buddha gave many similes and analogies. One was um, the image of a, of a young cow herder leaning against a tree in the shade while watching over his cows, uh, mindful of them not straying into the farmer's fields and eating the crops. And what I love about this image is the cowherder is relaxed in the shade, but alert. Right? That's why we say relax in the body, but alert with attention, alert with awareness. But not like cat over the mouse hole. No, relaxed, open, receptive, at ease, but also tracking. And the other facet of this, this analogy is um, there's an understanding of mindfulness one of the roles of mindfulness is it keeps the mind in the proper pasture. And by the proper pasture, meaning the pasture that doesn't create further suffering. 
As we've been watching today, how your mind creates suffering and how your mind creates peace. So mindfulness is, uh, and then another analogy, is the gatekeeper at an old walled medieval town. The, the, The gatekeeper tracks for the hostile and benevolent forces, lets in that which is benevolent, friendly to the city, keeps out that which is hostile. Same with mindfulness. Mindfulness is not just knowing, and I'm going to speak more about this, not just awareness, but also has uh, a purview to um, knowing what's, what's supportive of our well-being and what's supportive of our suffering. So sometimes, and one of the reasons I'm writing this book the, on mindfulness is because of the popularization of mindfulness. Generally, when things get popularized, they get simplified, they can get commodified, and often the original depth and root meaning is lost. And that's certainly happening. And one of the things that mindfulness is being equated to is attention. And mindfulness is attention, it's paying attention, but it's much more than attention. It's much richer and subtle and complex and deeper than that. In, in, the, in the Pali teachings, attention is manisakara, right? That simple bare perception. When you hear something, there's an initial cognizance of sound, contact, right? and that's one, that's the sort of building blocks of mindfulness. But mindfulness is a much fuller, um, there's an, another word, anupasati which is a repeatedly looking at a close observation of. So like when you're with the breath, you're not just noticing randomly, it's a deep, rich, layered awareness of that, of that unfolding experience. Or we pay attention to the body, we're not just noticing how it looks in the mirror, we're noticing its subtlety, we're noticing its movements, we're noticing its changing nature. We're noticing how it has a life of its own. That it's impermanent, transient, ephemeral, substantive, and yet not self. Has a a life of its own, does its own thing. The heart beats, the lungs breathe, and we're simply present to the whole show. There's another facet to mindfulness, which is a non-interfering awareness. How often do you meddling with your experience? Fiddling, trying to improve, trying to make it better, trying to make it happier, trying to you know, fix the breath and fix your body and your mind. And it's this whole self-help project and it's very tiring. Right? That's not mindfulness. That's getting involved and kind of, you know, like a potter getting in, getting in with the clay, you know. And mindfulness is an embodied knowing, right? It's not just, so I grew up with the show Doctor Who, which I don't think you have over here. You have Doctor Who over here? You do? And there's the Daleks, right? The Daleks have this little sort of antenna look around, yes, human beings and, you know, and we think, sometimes we think of mindfulness like with this top-down awareness of, oh, we're looking down there, oh, there's a body, oh, look, oh, there's people over there. And no, it's actually a full embodied, visceral, sensory, knowing experience. So, and the w- beautiful word in Pali is yoniso manisakara. And the, the root, the etymology of yoni, yoniso, is womb-like. 
So there's a, a there's a so the mindfulness has this womb is the womb of attention, the womb of awareness. Right? That's a very embodied quality of attention, as opposed to just this mental knowing. Right? And awareness and mindfulness is a knowing, but it's a full-bodied knowing. Yoniso manisakara, beautiful phrase. Another facet of mindfulness, as the Buddha speaks to, is it's a stabilizing force in the mind. We can stay steady even though a whole bunch of storms, like the rain came today and the wind and the clouds, and maybe we'll get thunder tomorrow. The mindfulness, the, the analogy the Buddha gives, is just like tying six uh, wild animals to a post. The post is mindfulness, and the, and the, the, the wild animals are our senses. And all kinds of things arise, thoughts, feelings, reactions, stories, dramas. And mindfulness allows us to stay steady in the midst of it. Like we do in meditation, we sit in the fire of our experience and we're present to a whole melodrama, right? Stories, fears, successes, failures, right? The, the, the stories you've been through today, right? Reliving past scenarios, imagining future successes and romances and sexual encounters and who losses, financial or whatever, right? And we, st- we sit still in the middle of it and go, oh, look at that, fantasy. Oh, look at that, fear. Oh, look at that, regret. Oh, look at that, shame. And we find a steadiness in the middle of it. Not necessarily easy, but accessible. So, another, so the, the Buddha in the teachings conjoined um, the word sati, mindfulness, with other words, and two, few words in particular importance. One is sati sampajanya. Sampajanya means clear comprehension. So mindfulness is in service of clearly comprehending our experience. We're not just aware of, say, you know, the fact that our knees aching after half an hour in the sitting. We're clearly comprehending there's tingling sensations, and we're also comprehending that we've gotten a little tight, and we're comprehending that our, our, our mind's gotten a little aversive, and our heart's gotten a little contracted, and that we start hating our knee because it's hurting. That's clearly comprehending this flow of experience, for example. The story, so uh, when I was teaching not so long ago here, and this person came into the talk late, and uh, quite late, like halfway through the talk, um, I gave him a really rude judgmental look just to make sure he felt bad. Just kidding. And... (laughs) And, um, you know, he was doing it. I didn't need to do anything because he was already judging and beating himself up. And with mindfulness, with that clear comprehension, he saw he was in late. He felt bad. He started judging himself. He sat down. He felt a lot of shame. He thought everybody was judging him. He saw it in mindf- with mindfulness, and he saw it was just a bunch of thoughts he was making up in his head, and it allowed the thoughts to dissolve. That's freedom in that moment. That's mindfulness in service of understanding, in service of seeing how we create pain by a simple incident of coming in at a certain time into a lecture, for example. 
So in the context of the Buddhist path, which I'll maybe talk about more in a couple of days, the, we have to understand mindfulness in the context of the broader teachings. So what is the point of Buddhist practice? Anybody like to shout out? What's the point of Buddhist practice? What's the end game? What's the fruit? Awakening. Freedom from suffering. And enlightenment. Uh-huh. Any other ways to frame that? Joy. Uh-huh. Happiness. The Buddha was known as the happy one. Even though he talked a lot about suffering and the end of suffering, and he was not afraid to talk about the challenging reality of, of human nature, he was known as the happy one, joyful one. So we have to understand that what we're doing here, as I mentioned a little bit the first night, is mindfulness is in service, if we understand the Eightfold Path, which is a broader framework for understanding the teachings. Mindfulness is in service of wise understanding, right understanding. Understanding how we suffer, understanding how we work with that suffering, how we find peace, how freedom can be cultivated, how joy and well-being can be cultivated. Right? These are the deeper swells of the teach the movements that and that understanding leads to wise motivation, how we act in our lives, uh, how we make choices, how we live ethically, etc., how we work wisely. So another way of understanding the, to summarize the path is we're looking we're we're, sh- we're looking at our lives, shifting from painful, reactive, unwholesome, unskillful states of mind and heart and gradually transforming those into wholesome, skillful, healthy states of mind and heart and action. And that's the trajectory of the practice and the path. And so, uh, but to do that, we need to understand ourselves, our mind. As I mentioned the first night, what is it that's interfering with you being at peace right now? If you look directly to your own experience, what is interfering right now? That's worth understanding. The Buddha said, look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. Know the sweet joy of the way. That's what we're doing, Well, And you'll start to feel this as the retreat goes on. You'll start to feel the fruits of the way, the fruits of the practice, the joy of the practice. Right now it seems like a lot of work, and and it is. You're doing the kind of you're in the trenches the first couple of days. You're working with your hindrances and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. And what am I doing here? And we'll we'll talk more about those obstacles tomorrow. And just lastly, to just in terms of this framework of mindfulness, there's what's called wise and unwise mindfulness, right and, and wrong mindfulness. Mindfulness is somewhat neutral in its in its essence well sort of neutral um, I could put some caveats to that but how we apply mindfulness where we where we take that attention what we put that attention in service of determines whether it's skillful or unskillful and when I say skillful I mean onward leading leading to happiness and peace unskillful meaning to leading to reactivity and suffering right? so there are many people who apply this laser-like focused attention who are not necessarily 
doing that for skillful ends. Can you think of some examples? Like a sniper. A sniper is hyper-aware, hyper-present, probably way more present than any of you were today. Because right? her life's on the line. What about a thief, a pickpocket? Super aware, super present. Right? Otherwise, you know, game over. They'll get, they'll get caught. Same with a trader. Right? There's a, there's a, there was an article, How to Make a Killing on Wall Street with Mindfulness. Right? Is that really mindfulness or is it that... It that is that attention, right? That's why I make this distinction between attention, manasikara, and mindfulness, sati, because attention can be oriented to different things, not necessarily skillful. Mindfulness is inherently skillful in that the mindfulness pulls together wholesome factors in the mind that leads to uh, onward-leading uh, supportive conditions and fruits. So that's sort of the, some of the lay of the land. So what does this mindfulness reveal on the retreat? So one of the first insights often people have, since this is insight meditation practice, is how unpresent you are, <laughs> how unmindful you are. I started wearing glasses the last few years, uh, mostly reading glasses, but I end up just keeping them on because they sort of work for most things. But sometimes I just can't find my glasses. And I complain, like, where did I lose them? I'm so unmindful. I scratch, oh, right, there, oh, right, there, there. That's embarrassing. And then even worse, sometimes I say, where's my glasses? I can't see, the, the, the text is too small. Where did I put my, oh, right there. I'm, I need stronger glasses. <laughs> A little, little humbling. <laughs> Um, so we see, like, how many times did you notice that you weren't present today? A lot. Maybe you get to the dining room and you go, how did I get here? I completely spaced out from here to there. What happened? I didn't notice whether it was raining or not, or the turkeys were out, or the grass was green or brown. I was just hungry, and I was fixated on getting to the front of the line, but not too at the front of the line, like second in line, you know, so it doesn't look like I'm really, really... Greedy, because you know it's a Buddhist retreat. We're supposed to be letting go of greed, so I'm going to be second or third, but not 27th. So I'm mindful enough to know that, you know. But but mostly the first insight that we have is how much we think. Anybody thinking today? Anybody notice one or two thoughts? Right. We're mostly, as Buddha Dasa said when he was asked, "It's great." Thai meditation master, what did he think about his, what was the, his observation about his meditation students? And he said three words, lost in thought. Lost in thought. And that was probably, I mean, he died in the 90s, I think. Um, yeah. So that was before technology and phones and, you know. So now he would have said, really lost in thought. <laughs> or in gadgets, or both. So I remember talking to an architect who we were sitting in the lower hall, and if you've taken a peek in the lower hall, if you sat down there, some of you have, it's beautiful architectural design with the beams, and you see a lot of the, you know, the supporting structure. And he spent the whole week 
analyzing the architectural design and how he would have done it differently. And that was the way he just, that was his habit, right? We see the habits of our mind, right? And this is very insightful. There's a beautiful quote from Padmasambhava, who was a, one of the founders of Tibetan Buddhism. And he said, let's see if I can remember it. If you want to understand your past, look to your present conditions. If you want to understand how you've been living, look to how you're living now because how you're living now is a direct uh, consequence of how you've been living. If you spend your time worrying about the future, about your kids, your finances, whatever, guess what you do in meditation? You spend time worrying about whether there'll be enough food in the lunch line or how you'll survive this retreat or whatever. And then he went on to say, if you want to understand your future, if you want to know your future, look to your present actions. If you want to see how you're going to be in five years, look at the habits you're developing now, because those habits will harden and deepen and will grow into what you become in five years. It's kind of sobering, but also liberating, because it, it realized we actually have a chance to determine how we unfold, depending on our choices, our actions, our intentions. So another thing you might notice is how much you just space out. And you're sitting, you know, we start the meditation, and then, you know, you're sort of present for a while, and then you go into this mode, what we call sinking mind, that's sort of like, sort of present, but sort of not really. And then the bell goes. And it seemed like you just started the meditation. It's like, what happened? That was, where did the 45 minutes go? I thought I was present, but can't it be 45 minutes already? I only counted up to seven breaths. Unless they were really long breaths. We space out. You know, there's a bunch of research that looks at how much we space out in the day, sometimes up to almost 50% of the day. We're not present to what we're doing. And the only, the highest thing that comes in the ratings of what we're present to is when we're having sex. But since that's off the table here, then you've got, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. Another thing you might notice is the reactive mind. Anybody notice any reactivity today? Not liking what's happening, not wanting what's happening, wishing it was somehow different writing all kinds of notes to the managers about how they could improve things. The thermostat, why is the thermostat in the closet? And why did they paint the walls magnolia? And on and on and on and on. And we get to see these habits that don't actually create well-being. But we live in them and we swim in them actually. And then we get to look with awareness and go, oh, are these habits and patterns really serving me? Is being lost and consumed in thought really that satisfying? It's where I live and hang out. But if I had a choice, is that what I'd really choose? In those moments when the thoughts are quieter and our body's at ease and we're simply still present and it's just breath or sounds or walking outside in the rain, and there's just sweet moments of presence and we feel, ah, oh, we feel like, oh, I've arrived. 
oh, now the retreat's going to be great from now on. I finally nailed it. Got rid of all those thoughts. I'm just here. In fact, I'm doing pretty good. I think I could teach this stuff in a few days. We start getting inflated and we start getting all excited and we're building our own retreat center and planning our next retreat and ordaining as a nun or a monk and suddenly we've created a whole bunch of agitation and thoughts and that sweet present moment stillness has disappeared. And on it goes. And then you hear the bell and then it's the next moment, the next breath. Or another habit that we notice is we'd rather be somewhere else if not here, where, but we are, our attention leans, well, maybe tomorrow, or maybe when I get to the sitting, or maybe when I get to the walking, or maybe once I have a nap, and maybe if I went to that other retreat down there, down there or maybe I went to a yoga retreat or something. How do we radically show up here for this, for this, for this? Since you're already here anyway, how do you surrender into this? It's a quote from Lao Tzu. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. Well, this is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. This is it. This is it. What are we waiting for? It's Bob Thurman, the Buddhist Tibetan philosopher, used to joke about. He says, you Buddhists, all you talk about is practice, practice, practice. When's the performance? (laughs) The performance is now, is this moment, this breath, this footstep, this knee pain, this sadness, this anxiety, this mental, you know, storm. How do I relate to this? with awareness, with kindness, with patience. So we need a lot of patience. Right? So I mentioned those qualities in the yesterday, patience for our wandering mind, for our achy body, for us, you know, turbulent heart, for our reactivity, right? You need to be patient. Beautiful teaching from a Christian um, uh, teacher, if I can find it, did I bring it? I did bring it. Francis de Sales, he said, be patient. I think he's a Christian teacher, I could be wrong there. St. Francis de Sales, kind of a giveaway. Uh, be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. I mean, do not be disheartened by your imperfections. How we... How are we to be patient in dealing with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? They who are fretted by their own failings will not correct them. All profitable correction comes from a calm and peaceful mind. So we cultivate patience, we cultivate that beginner's mind, we start to start, we try to start over, over and over. Okay, I've spaced out a thousand times today, but the present moment is infinitely forgiving. Oh, This moment I can return. This moment I can feel my body. This moment I can hear the sound of the crickets and the frogs. This practice is infinitely forgiving. Doesn't matter what happened in the last hour. You're here, fantastic. Oh, breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Stepping, I know I'm stepping. It's that simple. And we just 
piece together those moments and over time it starts to establish itself. So it's a little uh, more framework on the foundation. So um, today and tomorrow we're grounding in mindfulness of the body, which is the really the the foundational practice. And sometimes we hear that word foundational and we go, well, let's get to the advanced stuff because I've done the foundation, we've done the body thing. Let's get to the real stuff, you know, the secret teachings. The, bo- the Buddha said, um, everything you need to learn can be understood within this fathom-long body. Right? The whole of the universe can be understood by paying attention to our body physical experience. Everything is happening here. Everything that's happening here is happening in you and happening in the world. It's a, it's a microcosm. And so we understand this, we understand the world. Understand the world, we also understand this. He said, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness centered in the body. Right? So it's, we can't underestimate the power and the potency of learning to abide with an embodied presence. The, mind, the body is always in the present. Your senses are always in the present. Can you feel, right now, feel your feet? Can you feel your feet and not be present? Can you feel your buttocks or your belly or your shoulder blades against the chair or your eyes or your hands? As soon as I point to those, right, they become miraculously present. Awareness knows that experience quite effortlessly. You hear a sound. That's not happening in the past. It's not happening in the imagined future. So in the body, in our sensory experience, we abide here. So the more we attune to our body and its sensations, breath, and sensory organs, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, we learn to establish mindfulness in the present. And a way as, a, as an antidote to being caught in the flurry of our tumble drier mind. And so the breath is one doorway, not the only doorway, but it's also a refuge to anchor the attention, which is why we start there even though it's not so easy to stabilize there, over time it becomes easier. And you'll see through the week it becomes easier. becomes, you know, as the Buddha said, the mindfulness of breath is like one's best friend. It was the practice he was doing as he uh, attained full awakening. It's both a simple introductory foundational practice and for the Buddha it took him all the way to awakening. And then the Buddha said to be mindful at all times, as I was speaking about this morning. 
he said, this is from the Sutta, he said, the, the meditator acts clearly knowing, mindfully, clearly knowing when bathing, no, when eating, drinking, tasting, clearly knowing when defecating and urinating, peeing here now, they clearly are clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, and falling asleep, and waking up, and talking, and keeping silent. Basically, all the time. <laughs> no breaks. <laughs> right. And as we start to establish mindfulness, we don't want to take a break, because it's actually very satisfying. It's very nourishing and fulfilling to be embodied and present in one's anywhere, actually. Even if the experience is painful or difficult. When we can embody that mindful presence, it allows all experience to be more manageable. So, and that means being present all the time means also being present when you close the door to your bedroom. <laughs> Sometimes we're, you know, we're very mindful, we're looking really good, you know, we're just like the perfect yogi. And then we get to our bedroom and we place the hand on the handle, we, t- we feel the coolness of the handle, we feel the density of the metal and we push the door and then we close the door quietly so we don't disturb our yogis and oh god finally i can just relax and be myself and you know, make some mess and you know just kind of pick my nose scratch me bum and you know just fidget look out the window kind of find my books and you know <laughs> chill out oh finally i can just be myself <laughs> am i the only one who does that <laughs> am i the aberration no, there's something but you know there's a there's a pressure cooker in a retreat, right? It's like, we, 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 you know, we, and, and it actually serves us to practice, right? You know, supports us. And there's also a way that we can create a little bit of a sort of meditator shell that we kind of relax when we go into our room. So, but what's it like if you continue the practice when no one's looking? Yeah. What does that look like? You know, when you're cleaning your teeth and uh, combing your hair or whatever you're doing. And with mindfulness of the body, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow, not also so easy, right? Many of us carry chronic pain, chronic illnesses, or or acute injuries that you might be having, or recovering from surgery, or from an injury, um, or just the aches and pains of having a body, or aches and pains of getting older. Good Housekeeping magazine once ran an article for some reason on the 84 unpleasant sensations of the body. <laughs> and I imagine if we took a list, we could come up with 84 unpleasant <laughs> sensations, probably more, actually. Right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful practice to learn how, how do we find space and ease and a kind attention to hold that difficult experience. How can we see the changing nature of it? That it's not this monolithic experience of pain. It's a plethora of moving sensations. And at the same time, the body can also be this field of joy, of rapture, of delight, of spaciousness, of ease, of bliss. 
that can arise in meditation. You know, I was talking to a to a meditator on a retreat recently, and he'd only been meditating five or six months, but he was able to access very deep states of concentration, and his body was flooded with rapture and bliss, which is not the point of the practice. It's a side effect of concentration. You're all thinking, well, I want some of that. That sounds good. But it's, um, that can arise through the practice, right? The body has this amazing range of both really excruciating pain and also scintillating delight. So, um, as we practice with mindfulness, the body, as the Buddha was, as I was saying, the body, body was the Buddha was pointing to, becomes a source of insight, a source of understanding. As I said, everything can be understood in this fathom-long body. This is from Achan Mun, a great Thai meditation master. He said, "In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body." Never allow the mind to leave the body, or never allow the body to leave the mind, awareness. Examine its nature. This is the probing quality of mindfulness. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See its transient, unsatisfactory, or uncertain, selfless nature while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So I'm aware of the time here. I'm going to just find a way to summarize. I've got acres of material that I could entertain you with. So one important piece of mindfulness practice that we'll talk about in the next in the coming days, and you can think about have mindfulness having its twofold dimension. One is being present to what is. And the second is noticing how you are present to what is. How you're relating to or the attitude of your mind in relationship to the experience. And from a Buddhist psychology perspective, this is the critical piece in mindfulness. We learn to be present with what is, but in service of understanding how we're relating to that experience. Because how we relate to something determines our well-being, our misery, or our happiness. And if you don't believe me, pay attention. Right? We'll have this. You know, there are many similar experiences we'll have. It'll be cold tomorrow. It'll be rainy. It'll be cloudy. um, It'll be hot in here and cold in here, and the same food. And there'll be as, as many people as are here, there'll be many, as many experiences. And some of you will be delighted by all those circumstances and some of you will be miserable. Same thing, same experience, different way of relating to it. Right? So, for example, the rain. Right? Maybe some of you love the rain. If you're California, you love rain. Even if you hate rain, right now you love rain. 
or at least you appreciate the rain. Um, but many people don't like rain. I grew up in England. That's the weather. What's the weather? Oh, it's raining. Right, of course, it's England. <laughs> Except when it's drizzling, you know, and then it's a change. <laughs> so notice f- when you encounter the cold or the rain or whatever it is, notice your relationship to it. Liking, not liking. Wanting, not wanting. Preference, no preference. How you relate to that experience will determine whether you find ease with the rain, joy or sorrow with the rain. It's very simple. When you start feeling a twinge in your lower back and you feel like, oh no, that's my old injury coming back, notice your relationship to it. Is it one of immediate contraction, hatred, fear, anxiety, dread? Or is this simply, oh, look at that. I can notice some tingling, sharp sensations in my left lower lumbar. Oh, right. Oh, that's painful. Oh, And then we bring a kind attention. We soften into it because we know when we tighten and harden and contract and fear and hate it, it gets worse. And when we can soften and welcome and allow it, there's more ease. In that moment, it's the pivot point between suffering and freedom. And we have that pivot point in every moment. In every experience, we want to pay attention to not just what's happening, but how you relate to it. When you wake up at three in the morning and you can't sleep for whatever reason, even though you've been sleeping all day, you suddenly can't sleep at night because you've been cultivating mindfulness, you're like, oh, please, Louise. How do you relate to that? Do you, do you get, fr- oh, no, if I go sleep, if I, it's three o'clock, I'm going to be horribly tired tomorrow, it's going to be horrible, I'm going to hate it. Uh. Or it's like, oh, I'm awake. Maybe I'll meditate. What else am I going to do? Let's feel my breath. Maybe think about all the people who are sleeping. Wish them happiness. Or look out the window and see the moonlight. Or the, listen to the rain. How sweet. Right? Same experience. How we relate to it determines our suffering or our well-being. Or as the poet Hafez said, we all, you all have the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. So we wake up in the morning, feel a little tired, eh, maybe a little grumpy. We hear the bell. Oh, God, meditation, I hate that stuff. Oh, why am I here? Why didn't I go to Hawaii? And, we, and then we come in here, everyone looks enlightened, and we're like, enlightened people, <laughs> time for them. And we start judging and comparing, reacting, right? We mix all those ingredients, and what, do we, what happens? We feel like crap. And he also says later, he says, you also have within you the capacity to, to turn your exist you have the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. Right? So we have the ingredients here. A little mindfulness, a little awareness, a little presence, a little patience, a little self-compassion. Right? We cultivate those, we find greater ease, more joy. It's kind of simple. Simple but not easy. Simple but not easy. That's why we practice. All right, well, I could talk about the other foundations, but we'll have lots of time to explore those in the coming days. Um, so I'm fine with just leaving you with this um, overview of the practice, uh, 
deeper sort of exploration of mindfulness of body and this key point about how we relate to our experience. I'll just close with um, in the in the text um, throughout the, the this this teaching on uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, which covers the body, feeling tones, which we'll explore in a couple of days, states of mind and heart, and then the nature of experience. Um, at the end of each passage, there's what's called the refrain, um, and at the end of the at the end of the um, and, and, and part of the refrain, uh, the, the Buddha will say something like, and one knows the body in the body to the extent necessary for knowledge and bare attention. Right? We're cultivating this mindfulness for the simple knowing of our experience and the knowing of how we relate to experience and how that can cause conditions for our well-being and happiness or suffering. And at the end of the t- text, he says, the meditator abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. The meditator abides independent, free in themselves, independent, not clinging, not reacting to anything in this world. Right? When we don't cling, when we don't react, we free ourselves from suffering. It's that simple. Just not easy. So I'll leave you with this quote from uh, Zen teacher Jan Chosen Bays. And it's a beautiful teaching. I'll come back to this teaching uh, in the days here. And um, this is a, a teaching on how we open to what's here with mindfulness. She says, in this passing moment, all things come to be, and I vow to choose what is. And when she says, I vow to choose what is, I take that as, I vow to be with what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found, and truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this moment's gate, this moment's invitation. So let's sit together for a few moments. Just let these words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.